begin by saying good morning as we conclude our study in the Minor Prophets. Today we will consider the book of Malachi. The name Malachi just means messenger. He was a messenger or a prophet from God. He is the last of the Minor Prophets. If you look at the sequential order of the Minor Prophets, he was the last one to prophesy. And it's also the last book in the Old Testament. And I'm sure like you, there are, like me, there's verses that you have in the Bible. There are probably scriptures that you have or chapters that you read that resonate more with you based on your personal life experiences. Chapters or scriptures that you read that when you read them, they really cause you to reflect on your own spiritual disposition. And the book of Malachi, if you pay attention to it and you care about it, when you read it, it really forces you to pause and, if you will, take a spiritual pulse to really check your attitude. And not so much an attitude that we have towards people, that's important. The Bible talks about how we are to relate with one another, but really more of an attitude that we have towards God, an attitude that we have towards the words of God. And so, you know, we've been studying these minor prophets, and there's this common theme among them. These people, they misbehave, they become idolatrous, they rebel, they do things that are outside the will of God. God sends a prophet to them, telling them that they need to straighten up or to repent, or God's going to bring a judgment upon them. That's normally the theme. Not always, but most of the time, that's the theme in those, in those prophets' writings. But the book of Malachi is a little bit different. It's different in the fact that it's written in a dialectic dialogue. And you'll see what I mean as we go through it. So, for example, God brings an indictment or an accusation against a group of people. And instead of God just bringing the indictment and then telling them that they need to repent and then that's the end of it or else destruction, God brings the indictment against them and then they get to question or argue against the accusation that God has brought against them. And then God gives a rebuttal to their questioning of those accusations. And what you see in that is you really see their attitude and their spiritual condition in the argument that they present to God. And so as we go through the book, what we want to assess is we want to reflect on our own attitude, our own attitude towards the words of God, our own spiritual disposition, our own attitude to the way that we, we look at God and we look at His Word. And so we'll do that uh, looking in the book of Malachi. Well, who was Malachi writing to? Malachi was writing to post-exilic Jews. If you remember when David captured the city of Jerusalem, one of the things that he wanted to do was he wanted to build a temple to God. And even though David was a man after God's own heart, he was a good man, he was a warrior, God would not let David build that temple. Why? because he had blood on his hands. He was a warrior. And God said, my house is going to be a house of peace, and I'm not going to allow you to build it. So God allowed Solomon to build the temple. That was finished sometime around 990 B.C. And then worshipped, consumed, resumed in the temple, and things were fine until the children of Israel began to be idolatrous. They began to act up. God had enough of it. He sent prophet to them to warn them to straighten up. They wouldn't straighten up. And so God propped up the Babylonian Empire. They came in. And in 586 B.C., they destroyed the temple that Solomon built. They knocked down the infrastructure. They tore down the walls. They destroyed the temple. They grabbed the Jews, and they exiled them back into Babylon. 
And for 70 years, they were subjected to the whips and the edicts of the Babylonians until finally God relented. And God allowed the Persians, under Cyrus the Great, to come in and to overtake the Babylonians. And when they overtook the Babylonians, they allowed, the Persians allowed the Jews to re-migrate back into Jerusalem. And so when we're reading the book of Malachi, we're reading it to a group of Jews who are re-entering back into the city of Jerusalem. This is the context in which that it's written. And as they're coming back into Jerusalem, they're tasked with rebuilding the infrastructure of the city. They're tasked with rebuilding the city walls and to ultimately rebuild the temple. Well, and in 516 B.C., they rebuilt that temple. Okay, so roughly 80 years after uh, they were exiled, they rebuilt the temple. Okay, we read in 480 B.C. to 440 B.C., that's the period of Ezra. Ezra was a priest who was tasked with getting some of these people out of Babylon back into Jerusalem. We read in the book of Nehemiah, which was written somewhere, somewhere around 440 B.C., Nehemiah also dealt with the struggles of these people as they're re-migrating back into Jerusalem. And then we get into 435 B.C., about the time of Malachi, when he's writing this. So Malachi's writing is around 435 B.C., and guess what? After that, we run cold until we get to the New Testament. So what's the problem? I've already told you that God brings accusations against these Jews why is there already a problem? They were already enslaved, and now simply 80 years later, there's a problem. What is the problem? Well, it really stems back to uh, Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 1, and some other prophets as well. It says, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord again will comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. God promised them something. He says that they were going to rebuild the temple. And that this rebuilding of the temple was going to be grand. And that God was going to give them prosperity. And here they are, 80 years after being enslaved, they're looking around at the other nations around them saying, we don't have the things that these other nations have. God is not blessing us in the way that He said that He would bless us. God is relenting on His promises. In Haggai chapter, nine, in chapter 2 and verse 9, The latter of His house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. And so God promised them that this second temple that they were going to build was going to be grand. And they looked at the second temple that they built and they said, you know what, this looks like a best western compared to the Ritz-Carlton that we had. They weren't satisfied. 
and they felt like God owed them something. And because they felt like God owed them something, they just threw their hands up in the air and said, if this is what it's like just serving God, then who really cares? If this is the best that we can get from Him, if this is what He delivers on His promises, then mm, who cares? And this is the attitude that Malachi is writing to. This is what he's addressing. Well, how bad was the problem? Well, picking up in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. God says, I have loved you, but you say, and here's the dialectic dialogue, you say, how have you loved us? Now, I want you to imagine for a minute, some of you in here are parents, you have adult children. Some of you who have children. As a parent, what do you do? You provide for your children. You care for your children. You love your children. You protect your children. You sacrifice for your children. You try to do what's in the best interest of your children. You give to them. You allow them to go through hardships to strengthen them, to make them stronger in their life. But imagine they come to you as an adult and you say, Son, I love you. And the response that you get is this. Dad, how do I know that you love me? That is despicable. After the love, the sacrifice, the giving, and that's the attitude that you would give to your father? That's what they did to God. And you see in their response this cavalier attitude of, well, how have you loved us? Or prove it, God. Prove it to us that you loved us. I don't know. How about the fact that I didn't destroy you when you took your children to the altar of Melech and you burned them? How about because you exist as a nation still? He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid to waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. How about we start with this? The very fact that you still have air in your lungs is proof that I still care and love you. You know, sometimes we can look around at the world around us and feel like maybe God's doing us a disservice that we don't have the things that other people have or maybe our life is not in a state or a condition that we want it to, to be in and so we question God, well, does God really care about us? How about start with this fact? The fact that you're still alive, the fact that you still have air in your lungs is proof in and of itself that God cares for you. God says this, I chose Jacob, not Esau. And I want to kind of look at this dynamic because this love-hate dynamic, because I was confused by it for a long time and I want to explain it. And the reason why I want to explain it is because the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9. I mean, how can, can God choose to love one child over the other child? How can God, who is love, say that he hates somebody? He said that he hated Esau. Well, in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, Paul says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We all remember the account of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were twins. 
And we know how Jacob uh, tricked Esau into selling him his birthright. And how Esau became so angry with him that he tried to murder him. And we know that there was two nations that were, that were coming off those two lineages. You had Jacob, the nation of Israel. And we know that Edom, the nation of Edom, came from Esau. And for years and years and years, they hated each other and they fought because of this incident. Okay? God says that he loved Jacob. Who was Jacob? He was the child of promise. Remember, God went to Abraham and said, you're going to be the father of many nations. God made a promise, a covenant to Abraham that he would be the father of those nations. Well, guess what? Abraham had a son, Isaac. And Isaac had two, Isaac had two sons. Jacob and Esau. One of them had to carry on the lineage. One of them had to carry on the seed that God promised to Abraham. God had to choose one. And that's why Paul says that even before they were born, they didn't do anything good nor bad. It wasn't that God set up in heaven and said, you know what, I'm going to predestine Jacob to be saved because I think I'm going to like him and love him. And the other brother, I'm just going to hate and disregard and he can go follow, be a heathen pagan nation. That's not what that says at all. Okay, let me explain a little further. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Does Jesus want you to hate your father, your mother, and your siblings? Absolutely not. What did the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with promise. Do those seem contradictory? That's not what it means. What it means is Jesus is saying, if the choice is between your family and me, you choose me as a disciple. And what God is saying here is not that he hated Esau in the fact like we think of hate, like despise something. It's that God had to make a, a choice. He had to make a, a selection. And his divine sovereign will was that the younger child would be the one who carried the seed of Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, if you study the history of these two, as I said, Esau was the father of the Edomites, and they did mistreat Judah. So not only did Esau try to murder his brother, but the Edomites, remember when the Babylonians came in and they took the Israelites captive, one of the things that they did was they conspired with the Babylonians to have the children of Israel taken into captivity. And once they were taken into captivity, they laughed at Israel. They gloated at it. They loved the fact that God's people were taken into slavery. Remember when the children of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness and they were trying to get to the promised land. They needed to go through the nation of Edom to get there. And so they went and approached the leaders of the nation of Edom and they said, can we go through here? Not only would they not allow them to say passage through there, but they came at them with an army. And that's what the whole book of Obadiah is about. We've already studied Obadiah. Obadiah is the prophecy of the destruction of the Edomites. And guess what? God destroyed them. Modern day Petra, whoever had that lesson, we talked about all of that. Right? It wasn't that Esau did anything wrong before he was born. It was that God had to make a selection. And Esau had free will. He had free will not to choose to murder his brother. He had free will in that. He could have been a follower of God just like Jacob was, but he didn't. He didn't do that. He tried to murder his brother, and that caused a generational problem. 
in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. We're the children of promise. So just as Jacob was the child of promise, the nation of Israel would come through his seed, God's chosen people. Once John the Baptist came, Jesus came, Jesus gave the sacrifice. Now God has adopted all of us who choose to follow Jesus Christ into his family and now we become the children of promise just as Jacob was the child of promise. Back to Malachi in verses uh, 6 and 7. What else were they doing? Well, the priests were despising the name of the Lord. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, if then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, O priest, who despising my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. And so again, here's this cavalier attitude. God says, you polluted my table. They said, have we polluted your table? And God tells them the reason you did is because you're bringing blemished, sickly sacrifices to the altar. They didn't care. They looked around at everybody else. They saw what everybody else had. They looked at themselves in comparison to that and thought, Matt, this is the best God can do, then who really cares? We're going to go to the altar. We're going to take the sickliest sheep or lamb that we have, and we'll give that to God. God said, you polluted the altar when you did that. They didn't put forth an effort. They didn't care. They didn't put forth an effort in worshiping God. I want to look at this, too. It says, as a son, in, in verses 6 through 8, as a son honors his father, go down to the ver last verse there, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer animals and sacrifice, that is, not, is that not evil? Is that not evil? So they were bringing these animals that were blemished and sick, and that was their sacrifice. And God says, is that not evil? You know, when we come to worship, you know, if, if my responsibility is to be in a teacher in a congregation, then I'm required by God, to give a sincere best effort at what I do. If the best that I can do is to sit down at Saturday at 7 o'clock and whip something together and then stand up here on Sunday morning and start making excuses how I don't feel good and then just present a terrible lesson, that's not giving my best. That's, that's not just wrong. That's evil. That's evil. That's how serious it is that God says that if you're going to come to worship, that you give your best effort in whatever you do. If your purpose in this congregation is to be an encourager to somebody, you have the attitude, you have the demeanor, you have the kind words, you're soft-spoken, people are drawn to you. If that's who you are, if that's your talent, and you don't give it your best effort, it's evil. Just like they weren't giving the best that they had to God when they would go worship Him then. Notice what God says. Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. God says, if this is the best you can get, I wish we would just shut down the temple. If this is the best that you can get, just shut the church doors. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. Their attitude, because of their selfishness, was that it's a chore. 
That word weariness means a hardship. It was a labor. It was a labor for them to get up and to grab their sick animal and to drag their knuckles into the temple to offer it. It wearied them. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 11, 13 through 15. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he's married the daughter of a foreign god. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What was one God seeking? Godly offspring. So again, we go back. They're looking at everyone else around them. They feel like they've been dealt a poor hand and they were disinterested and their wives, they looked around at the other nations and you said, you know, they're more prosperous. They have more resources. They're doing much better in life. Why don't we just go divorce our wives and then go intermarry into these other nations? And what was the problem with that? God says, you want to come to me at your altar when you do have a problem and you come with tears and you come with anguish and you're weeping and you're suffering and you're asking for my help, but I'm not listening to you. Why? Because you went out and you divorced your wives to go marry somebody else and now you're having these offspring with these women who can't, who can't speak Hebrew, who don't know who I am, and now they're over there worshiping along with their mother. The whole purpose for you was to marry so that you could produce what? Godly offspring. God wanted godly offspring. And God said, I'm not going to hear your prayers because of what you're doing. That's why he told them in the next verse, So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Again, here's this questioning to God's accusation against them. By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking, where's the God of justice? God, you ever been around somebody who just wears you out? This is the way that God felt with them. He was just absolutely tired of them. He was absolutely wearied with them. Why? Because they were looking around going, I mean, God, where is the God of justice? Why, why does this nation over here have more resources, more assets, more prosperity than we do? Where is the justice in that? Or they would see wrong in the community and go, well, where's the... Because the priests were checked out. They didn't care. They were robbing God. Nobody was, nobody was upholding the law. And this constant bemoaning before God. Where are you at, God? You ever felt that way about the world? You looked at the world and you think, where's God at? What's God doing? And that's what they were doing. And God was doing something, they just didn't know it. 
He gives them an answer in chapter 3 and verse 1 to that question, where are you at? He says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to this temple. And the messenger of the covenant is whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, the Lord of hosts. Who's he talking about? He's talking about John the Baptist. God says, I am doing something about it. I'm going to send a messenger who's going to ultimately prepare the way for my son. He doesn't tell them this, but this is what's happening. To prepare the way for my son that's going to bring justice, that's going to bring peace, what you so desperately need, even though they didn't recognize it, and even though it didn't, he didn't look like what they expected. He was doing something. But remember, Malachi was written around 435 B.C. So we're going 400 years here of radio silence, nothing going on. But God was working on it. You know, this, this cry that they had, this cry about injustice, this cry about everyone else around them being in a better condition that they were in. You know, I was reading Psalm chapter 73. That's a psalm of David. In that psalm, it's David petitioning God, saying, God, I'm looking out into the world and I see the injustice in the world, and I see the unfairness in the world, and I see those who take advantage of the needy and the poor. But he says, in God, I, I will trust you. He says, the wicked are so prideful that they don't acknowledge the existence of God, that they think that they're better off, that they control their own destiny to the point that they draw their own sword against the needy and they bend their own bow against the needy. It says God's going to take that sword and he's going to turn it around and thrust it into them. Those who draw the bow towards those who are impoverished and needy and step on them, God's going to take the arrow and turn it around and thrust it into them. It may be 400 years later when Jesus comes. It may be two years from now in your personal experience, but God is in control of the situation. And so to look upon the world and to think, where's God? God's doing something about it, and He'll do something about it in His time, just like He did with all of these people in the Old Testament. They were robbing God in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall I return? Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. And you say, how have we robbed you? And he tells them, you've robbed me in your tithes. So, again, this attitude, if this is what serving God is, then... This general 10% that we're supposed to take to the storehouse of the treasury of the temple, we'll just drop what we can. We'll drop off our dirty sheep and goat, and you know, that'll be the best that I can do. And God said, when you do that, you're robbing me. You know, a part of the, t the temple, a part of their tithing, was to maintain the, the priest so they could have a livelihood, was to maintain the structure of the temple, to maintain benevolence. It's all of the things that we do when we tithe in church. We give our money, why? So we can spread the gospel. We give our money, why? So we can take care of the building. We give our money to be able to do benevolent work. And so when they weren't giving the money, the priests weren't getting paid, and they just sat around and didn't care because nobody else cares. And then the soap dispensers and the grass were growing up, and nobody's doing anything about it. And God said, that right there is robbing me. He said, you know, if you actually just gave me what I told you to give me, you know, I might be able to, like, help you out. I might be able to bless you. I might be able to give you something. And he questions them. He goes, don't, don't, don't you fear me? Don't you fear the fact 
that I'm God. I can wipe out your vineyards. I can wipe out your fields. I can drive you into a famine. Why would you not give me these things? Do you not have enough respect for me that you would give me this? And they didn't. But notice this. Even though God is talking to the priest and the nation of Judah, they were both guilty. The priests were just as guilty as the people were guilty. He does say this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day I will make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man who spares his son whom he serves. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So apparently, even though God was addressing them as a nation and as a priesthood, there were still people in that community who were doing what God wanted them to do. And I think that that's important that God highlights this. Again, this is the last book of the Old Testament. This is the last thing that God wanted you to know before we transition into the New Testament, that God takes notice of those who were trying to do right. So what are some lessons from the book of Malachi that we can draw from? Number one, be cautious not to become apathetic nor resentful to God's word just because we may perceive that God has not intervened or we've not seen a promise fulfilled. You know, you may lose your health tomorrow. You may get a diagnosis of cancer and you may walk down the street and see somebody laid out on the street with a drug needle in their arm and think, how does this person have any more health in their body than I do? How is that fair and just? You know, I've done everything right. I've not cheated on my taxes. I've done what I'm supposed to do. But yet somebody else who's taken advantage of people are in a greater position of superiority and are far more, far more advanced. God, how is that fair? God's going to take care of it. God's going to, it says God's going to break the arms of the wicked. God's going to take that dagger. He's going to thrust it into those who oppress the poor and needy, and he'll do the same with the arrow. Another lesson we can draw from it is that God is serious about the sincerity, effort, and giving put forth in our worship. Whatever your role is here, then again, I think the book of Malachi really draws out the importance of taking it seriously and doing it uh, with a good effort and doing it with a good heart. Another lesson we can draw from this is that God's serious about marriage and He desires godly offspring. And lastly, I think we can learn that God judges us as individuals despite our nationality or our heritage, that we are all children of the promise, those who've accepted Jesus Christ. That concludes our study on the book of Malachi. Um, I hope that it's been insightful to you. I hope that it's drawn awareness to the need to fend off spiritual apathy and, uh, and, to, and to draw closer to God and to realize that that God is in charge of all, that God's taking care of things even though we might not see it or understand it. And one day, uh, things will be made right in His time. So at this time, if you have a matter to bring before the congregation or if you wish to be immersed in uh, baptism, we ask that you come as we stand and sing.